<laughs> Thank you, Daniel. Uh, good afternoon uh, to everyone. And uh, my name is John Babcock. I'm an attorney with the law firm of Morrison Mahoney in Boston. Uh, we wanted to thank you uh, for joining us for this webinar, which will address uh, the practice of telehealth from a variety of perspectives during the COVID-19 public health emergency. Uh, we certainly hope that you find this discussion uh, both interesting uh, and informative. Um, we would also like to thank the, the Boston Bar Association for organizing and hosting this webinar. Uh, specifically, uh, thank you to, uh, to Daniel Tillman and to Sarah Mackey uh, for helping uh, to put this together. Uh, we have a great panel here uh, today to discuss some of the implications of the COVID-19 pandemic to the practice of telehealth uh, from a variety of perspectives. Um, you'll be hearing from Lisa Thompson, who is a partner with the law firm of Robinson and Cole here in Boston. Uh, in addition, we'll be hearing from Melissa Bradley, uh, Associate General Counsel with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Uh, Krieta Bowens-Jones, who is Associate General Counsel at the Dana-Farber C Cancer Institute. And also Tony Ablin, who is a partner at the law firm of Morrison Mahoney, also here in Boston. Uh, so we want to thank our panelists for, for leading this very timely and important discussion. Uh, right before I turn it over to our first speaker, uh, our first uh, speaker will be Lisa Thompson. Uh, again, Lisa is a partner at the law firm of Robinson and Cole in the Boston office, and she is uh, also co-chair of the Boston Bar Association's uh, health law section. Uh, Lisa's practice includes advising clients on the regulatory aspects of providing telehealth services during the COVID-19 public health emergency. Uh, she represents clients across the healthcare, life sciences, and technology industries. Um, Lisa is an arbitrator with the American Arbitration Association on their healthcare and life science panels, as well as the uh, American Health Lawyers Association. Uh, today, Lisa will be discussing with us the impact of COVID-19 on Medicare coverage, uh, waivers, and policies for telehealth. So, Lisa, I will turn it over to you. Okay, um, am I sharing the correct screen? <laughs> Could somebody confirm? It hasn't popped up just yet. Um, you would need to select your screen at the bottom of your yeah. screen to do so. I did. Okay, and did you select- You have to probably get your screen off. Uh, I am not sharing the screen right now. Okay. Um, Select screen to share. Are, you're not seeing it, are you? Not just yet. Uh, would you like me to put up your slides? Um, yes. Uh, do you, hopefully you have the animations. I believe I do. Run the slideshow. Okay, next. Just one click. Okay, so um, Daniel, mm -hmm. can you hear me? Yes, and uh, if you would like remote control, if you go to the top of your screen uh, where it says that you're viewing my screen, if you click on the drop-down menu, it should allow you to get remote control and you can click through the slides yourself. Slide-by-slide uh, -slide mode, request remote control. Here we are, request. Yep. My goodness, okay. Click to start the mouse. All right, I did it. All right. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. 
Um, I first wanted to uh, tell you that what I'm, I don't know why it's clicking. Um, are you clicking it? Okay. Um, first, what we wanted to do is provide sort of the framework for telehealth over at Medicare before and after the public health emergency was declared including various waivers that were in place because we really felt like this would set the stage for the rest of the presentation where we get other perspectives other than Medicare. So first we start with some terminology and everybody's always wondering, I mean, telehealth, is it telehealth? Is it telemedicine? What does that really mean? Well, first of all, I'll start by saying that's very, it's very confusing terminology. And let's see. Uh, Medicare, in fact, has a specific list of what they call telehealth services, and they use that term, and those are services that they generally pay at the same rate as in-person. This is before the public health emergency, things like office visits and so forth. Now, Medicare also pays for other types of communication-based technology services, but does not call those telehealth, at least officially. You'll see it creep into the uh, policies and publications, but um, it's important to understand that distinction on the CMS side. The American Medical Association primarily uses a term telemedicine, uh, but they also use telehealth and telehealth medical services um, almost interchangeably. The Mass Board of Registration and Medicine includes telemedicine in the definition of the practice of medicine. And some consider telehealth, I mean, telemedicine to be a subset of telehealth and vice versa. So I've gotten into all kinds of discussions with folks about what is telehealth, what is telemedicine. Many times they're used interchangeably and also the term digital health is used. So really you need to understand sort of what the framework is you're working around in terms of what that, which one you use. And as far as CMS is concerned, uh, telehealth has a very specific definition. So prior to the public health emergency, let's just lay that out in terms of what um, Medicare telehealth uh, was all about. You had to use two-way real-time telecommunication systems between an established patient and a physician or practitioner. You cannot use a telephone. For office visits, the billing and reimbursement was under the physician fee schedule, and this was the same as in-person for the, for the uh, healthcare provider. There's a list of telehealth codes, again, the word telehealth and only those services at this link, um, which I can certainly provide uh, the slides uh, afterwards or the BBA can, uh, including the link. What you need to understand is the list currently contains certain codes that are only gonna be applicable during the public health emergency. Consent of the patient is required, including making them aware of any cost sharing responsibilities. Verbal is okay, but of course you're gonna wanna document that consent at least once a year, and the consent would cover all communication technology-based services, including but not limited to telehealth. <clears throat> so let's talk about, other than telehealth, what are the uh, communication-based technology services that Medicare reimbursed for prior to, and actually through, the public health emergency? First is an e-visit. This is a patient-initiated communication between an established patient and a provider. It's done through an online patient portal, okay? These are ENM services, evaluation and management, not face-to-face, -face, and I've just tossed up the CPT and HICS codes. 
It doesn't reimburse at a very high rate, by the way. Um, nothing like an office visit. Uh, next, and, and, and frankly, most, of, um, most providers were not even billing for it because the rates were so low. Next is the virtual check-in, which is a brief five to 10 minute check-in with a practitioner, has to be a practitioner authorized to furnish E&M service. Again, it has to be an established patient and the communication has to be initiated by the patient. So the, the practitioner or physician can't just call a patient and have uh, a virtual check-in bill uh, be able to be generated. This, this can be via telephone or other telecommunication services. And the purpose of this virtual check-in really is where the patient is calling with an issue or problem and everybody's trying to decide whether an office visit or other services needed. The doctor's working with the patient around that. Audio only, telephone is okay, um, but it cannot be the result of a prior appointment within the last seven days or lead to an appointment with the next 24 hours because the billing is gonna be wrapped into those appointments. So it's not gonna count as some separate um, service that you could bill for. And again, I've um, tossed up the HICPICS code. Um, next is remote evaluation of pre-recorded patient information. So the patient's taken a picture, right, of a rash or something like that. And they're asking the physician to uh, take a look at it and evaluate it. So they are sending that over, either that or a video, um, and it's submitted by an established patient. Once again, it's not, not to be the result of a prior appointment within the last seven days or lead to an appointment within 24 hours because that is already included in the reimbursement for those visits uh, if those calls are made. Once again, tick picks code around that. Um, finally, interprofessional telephone internet consultation. These are communications between two providers. Um, you have a consulting physician who's gonna be providing a verbal and written report, and you have um, a treating or requesting healthcare professional as well. I will tell you that these, are, these were codes that were very rarely used uh, prior to the public health emergency. Uh, but they are out there, they were out there, and they continue to be out there as uh, possibilities. So I looked into this uh, in more detail and got these sites together. And after I did that, I said, I never want to have to try to figure this out again. So I thought that for you, I would put it together in a slide, just what is the basis of the waiver authority around telehealth. Um, it is located in Social Security Act Section 1135. So we hear reference to 1135 waivers. This is what they're talking about. I'm not going to go through this in detail, but suffice it to say, initially, there was relaxation, uh, specifically allowing telephones to be used for telehealth, but requiring two-way, real-time, interactive communication through the phone. So technologies that permitted that. Um, as opposed to just audio only. Now, that led to all kinds of issues. People were having difficulty with all patients being able to manage that kind of technology. So the next thing uh, that happened, there was a statutory waiver, uh, statutory um, permission to allow CMS to waive all statutory telehealth requirements uh, in section 1395M subsection M the caveat there is that this broad telehealth waiver authority that came along later 
specifically only applies during the COVID public health emergency, and that's under in the statute. The March 6th uh, waiver ability was not necessarily specific um, uh, to um, COVID. So then, then we have telehealth qualifying technology, uh, communication systems. What qualifies? Okay, well, originally, the interactive communication system had to, at a minimum, permit two-way real-time. No phone, no fax, no email, even if it was two-way at the time. Even if you had an image and it was video, it did not count. So initially, again, telephone could meet the definition once the public health emergency waivers came through, but only if audio and video, real-time, two-way, okay? This is for telehealth where you're reimbursed the same as in-person. These are those higher level, level codes, not the e-visit. Those are all different. Uh, March 31st, there was a recognition that people were really having issues with the um, video component real time on the phone. And so what happened was they added some audio only codes to allow those to be reimbursed sort of in between what you got for the e-visits and virtual check-ins and the full office visits. What they did was take existing codes that the AMA had out there, CPT codes, and they, where they were not reimbursing those before, they began to allow them to be reimbursed. So it was less than an office visit, but more than the virtual check-in. So after that, they increased payment rates for certain of those codes. Um, and so they're really trying, I think, to be responsive to some of the technological uh, issues that folks have been facing. A side note here, I'm not going to go into great detail on, is that the Office of Civil Rights also granted certain HIPAA waivers around the technology, uh, meaning that you could use technology that normally you would not be able to use, uh, including technology that was with someone other than a business associate. Now. I say that, but I also say that as it was always strongly recommended, even from, as we understand it, CMS itself, um, when they're communicating with providers, that they be encouraged very strongly to go ahead and make sure whatever they were putting into place was HIPAA compliant uh, and did um, have the business associate agreements in place and so forth. So I'm going to give you a little bit of detail on these audio-only codes because I know a lot of uh, providers are starting to use these, particularly uh, for patients that don't have this video capability. I'm not going to go into detail here, but I did want to just put this up on the screen for you. Um, there are these uh, several codes here at the top that are time-based, and you'll see that initially they were reimbursing at RVU 0.25, then they started increasing them to 0.48 because they realized again, that these, some of these were starting to be substituted for the full telehealth in-person visit, and they wanted to reimburse somewhere in between. So you see then there's 11 to 20 minute, 21 to 30 minute. Um, and you did also have a direct practice expense input payment for post-service registered nurse, LPNs, medical technical assistants, the clinical labor time for each code. Um, so, while it technically was supposed to be for established patients, CMS, and this is a quote, indicated that they will not conduct a review to consider whether they were furnished to established patients. So 
you know, that's a, we'll turn a blind eye, but the real requirement is established patients. Um, Coinsurance and deductibles apply, but these, according, these are now allowed to be reduced or waived during the public health emergency. However, remember that if you're going to have the co-pays and deductibles and they're not waived, um, you definitely need to make sure that you provide notice of patient responsibility uh, for payment when you're doing the consenting. Um, we only have a couple more slides uh, to turn it over to the other folks. CMS example. Here's an example of audio only. Established patient, 25-minute phone call, decide, the physician decides to adjust the patient medication. That's an example of an audio only at 99443. Um, and again, if not an established patient, CMS uh, has indicated it would not review. I'm just going to quickly go through this. We have originating and distant sites. Um, originating, that's the patient location. Don't have to have a healthcare provider. Originally, what you'll see, the red is after the public health emergency, the black is before. There were definitely requirements here. It had to be a rural health professional shortage area and other, or other requirements. After the PHE, waivers not required. Originally, it had to be on a list of the type of originating sites. Now, it can be, during the emergency, patient home or other locations not on the list. Uh, there, there were originally and continue to be exceptions for certain, you know, for stroke, substance use, home dialysis. The other is the distant site, which is the provider location. Provider reimbursement, same rate as in-person visit for telehealth. Uh, after the public health emergency, the provider designates the site of service, whether it's office-based or hospital-based. And now rural health centers and federally qualified health centers can provide telehealth services during the public health emergency. Again, there's some guidance to be for a link. Um, originating site facility fees, this has come up an awful lot in questions. So from March 1st till the end of the public health emergency, facility fees are allowed for hospitals for services are provided to the patient at home. But the caveat is the hospital actually has to make the patient home a hospital outpatient department. They have to send an email uh, to their uh, regional office with a request for this. And certain conditions of participation have to be met, uh, but a lot of them um, are in fact waived. So this is something that's very complicated, something that people can look into, facilities can look into to get that facility fee on top of the pro fee, but the individual must also be registered as a hospital outpatient. So this is again, a high level view of this, um, and literally you're doing a separate request for each patient's address, each patient's home. Um, so this is my last slide, additional services during public health emergency. Um, all of these are additional during the public health emergency and um, talking about primary care exceptions, certain care directed by medical residents, opioid treatment programs, certain services can now be provided during the PHE using um, the two-way interactive system. And if no access to that, you can use audio only. So I'm gonna turn this over, back over to um, our moderator to introduce the next speaker, but hopefully that gives you a good lay of the land of what existed and how things have expanded. And my only last comment will be that it is very possible that people have become so used to this by the time the public health emergency is over that there may be quite a bit of pressure for CMS to continue uh, offering more expanded telehealth services. And in fact, just this week saw a bit of uh, an expansion uh, on that already. Thank you. 
Great. Thank you very much, Lisa. Uh, next, we will uh, have the pleasure of hearing from Melissa Bradley, uh, who is uh, Associate General Counsel with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, uh, where she has worked for the last 15 years. Uh, Melissa has uh, extensive private sector experience in uh, healthcare, regulatory, nonprofit, and corporate law. And uh, at Blue Cross Blue Shield, she focuses her work on corporate and regulatory matters, including telehealth. Uh, Melissa today will be discussing with us the Massachusetts Division of Insurance Bulletins that came out of Governor Baker's emergency orders uh, related to telemedicine and how uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield has adapted to those new rules. And uh, if, if time allows, Melissa may also speak briefly on some of the uh, other government actions uh, that touch on telemedicine at the federal level and in other states as well. Uh, so I'll turn it over to you, uh, Melissa. Thank you. There we go. Hi, thank you. Um, nice to be here today. So as John mentioned, I'm going to give it, start with an overview of some of the things that have happened in Massachusetts. On March 2nd, MassDPH announced the first presumed case of COVID-19. A few days later, on March 6th, the Division of Insurance came out with the first of 17 bulletins on um, COVID coverage. Only a couple of them relate to telemedicine, though. Um, the first one was... Uh, issued to provide information to carriers, which are defined as commercial health insurers, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, and HMOs about the division's expectations regarding carriers' appropriate coverage of testing and treatment for COVID-19, as well as some other actions. Um, at this point, it was really focused on testing and treatment. So the, the bulletin directed carriers to promote telehealth options, including removing cost sharing for such services, um, for screening, evaluation, diagnosis, and treatment, to reduce the need for patients to come to medical offices, and to relax prior authorization requirements. On March 6th, um, there wasn't much testing available. It certainly wasn't happening over you know, telemedicine visits. Um, but then on March 15th, Governor Baker issued an order expanding access to telehealth services, which was effective March 16th. And the Division of Insurance came out with another bulletin on March 16th um, emergency measures to address and stop the spread of COVID-19. And this is where we got into some much more expansive measures to um, encourage telemedicine. And this basically said for the duration of Governor Baker's emergency order regarding telehealth, the order required all carriers to allow all in-network providers to deliver clinically appropriate, medically necessary, covered services to members via telehealth. Um, and it could not be limited to live video, meaning that telephone must be covered, which was something totally new for us. Um, it also said that rates of payment to in-network providers for telehealth visits could not be lower than rates of payment for in-person visits, and that carriers are required to cover without cost-sharing medically necessary treatment delivered via telehealth related to COVID-19 at in-network providers. Um, during the duration, and then that the bulletin further went on with some more um, details and said that carriers were to forgo any prior auth treatment, any prior auth requirements, and any cost sharing for medically necessary treatment in accordance with DPH and CDC guidelines. And again, that the treatment, um, you know, has kind of evolved over time, but that was something that was, that we focused on too. 
um, when delivered via telehealth by in-network providers. And the governor's orders on the 15th and the DOI bulletin on the 16th spelled out in more detail what cost sharing meant. The March 6th bulletin just said cost sharing, which is a, is a broader term that can mean different things, but both of these specified that it was co-pays, deductibles, and co-insurance. Um, and that's relevant for, for something I'll talk about a, a little bit uh, later, um, versus the, the March 6th bulletin just said cost share. So it was a very broad sweeping um, coverage. And this bulletin also explained that carriers could impose reasonable requirements, but would not be permitted to impose any specific requirements on the technologies used to deliver healthcare services. In, um, telehealth services, echoing the, the, the governor's orders and reiterating that phone, phone visits would be covered. Um, one of the interesting things about this bulletin was that it had a special note for carriers acting as third-party administrators. So Blue Cross um, is a carrier, and like many carriers, we offer fully insured plans where we bear the risk of the, of the product. And self-funded programs or self-funded plans where really the large employer group is the health plan and they bear the risk. And that the biggest significance to that is that self-funded plans are preempted from being subject to state insurance laws by ERISA. So the Department of Insurance does not have jurisdiction over those self-funded plans and many large employers have these. Uh, but what they did was they made a special note saying that carriers acting as TPAs for self-funded employer group-sponsored health plans, were expected to encourage those group health plans to be consistent with those bulletin, to be consistent with the bulletin. Um, the DOI also issued an FAQ on this that encouraged plans, that encouraged carriers, rather, to take steps consistent with the bulletin on testing and treatment, telehealth, premium flexibility, prescription drug benefits, prior auths, um, treatment for emergency room and out-of-network services. So that was something, as I kind of segue to the next part of, um, when Blue Cross looked at these things, you know, back in March, you know, the, the first bulletin, we were actually still at work when the first bulletin came out, and we had just gone home for the second one. So it was still very early in the crisis as we were working through these issues, but the bulletins were coming fast and furious. Um, and to give some context, in February of 2020, we had about 200 telehealth claims per day, and now we get about 38,000. So the volume of telehealth just completely skyrocketed, particularly when it was shifted to all services um, being available via telehealth, not just the testing and treatment of COVID. At Blue Cross, we have two ways that telehealth is covered. One, we call seeing your doctor, and that's through our local provider network and a provider has may, may have their own technology system. And we also have a vendored solution called Well Connection that um, is seeing a doctor. And that's when you go online and you just see a doctor that you don't know. So the benefit that, that we, we have a, a telehealth benefit that your insurance may include, and that is access to Well Connection and access to providers via telehealth. So not all members prior to this had telehealth coverage. So we had to recode all of our systems so that people who didn't actually, who didn't normally have telehealth coverage had it. Um, 
some of the other questions we had to answer were, were the services COVID related or not COVID related? The mandates from the state all talk about COVID related covered services, evaluation, diagnosis, treatment. Um, Blue Cross, like many other carriers, expanded this to include non-COVID treatment or non-COVID services um, with the goal of really being to keep people out of the hospitals and out of healthcare settings so that they could, um, you know, they were, people didn't want to go to them. We didn't want the spread. So that was something that Blue Cross did that was over and above what was required by the mandate. Um, but as I kind of alluded to earlier, the self-insured plans aren't subject to the mandate. So we kind of had to work through those issues of, of how we, we grappled with that. Um, with respect to our vendor platform, because not everyone had access to that, those were deemed out-of-network providers. The, the orders relate to in-network providers. So the out-of-network, um, we had a little bit more flexibility on how to handle um, we also had to expand to allow for phone, which as I mentioned before, is just not something that's typically covered. Um, and then also to make sure that the payment rates for telehealth visits were the same as in-person rates. Um, the, the Department of Insurance Bulletin didn't really change so much our well connection, well connection offering, but just sort of who it applied to. Um, Lisa went into all the, the details on Medicare, but I'll just mention, so Medicare Advantage is a, a different type of, of program separate from original Medicare, where the plans have a little bit more flexibility. For Medicare Advantage, we also um, expanded the coverage there to um, allow for in-network providers to have telehealth services at no cost share for both COVID and non-COVID. So, you know, our, our emphasis has really been on expanding coverage and access, waiving cost share, waiving it for even non-COVID um, uh, visits in some cases, and um, just really trying to work with the healthcare community to keep people home. <laughs> um, so as often happens when the state acts, it sometimes creates a conflict or raises question under federal law. And this was no exception. Um, and there were just a couple things I wanted to mention. Um, one, in general, providers aren't supposed to waive cost share because it can promote overutilization. Um, here, though, the overarching public policy of keeping people home was, um, was enough that the OIG issued a policy statement um, where physicians and practitioners would not be subject to administrative sanctions for reducing or waiving cost share for federal health care beneficiaries for telehealth visits, um, which was great. Uh, we weren't as much concerned with the physicians waiving cost share as one of the things that struck us early on when we were looking at the March 16th bulletin where we we're starting to waive cost share and what that meant was um, for any of you who have a high deductible health plan or are familiar with that, it's a, it's a type of health plan that's often paired with a health savings account. And there's this concept of a no first dollar coverage rule, and this is where the deductible comes into play. So under normal IRS rules, if a high deductible health plan waives the deductible for any service other than a preventive care service, then it's no longer considered a qualified high deductible plan 
and employees who participate in that are not eligible to contribute or receive employer contributions to a health savings account. Well, this happened in you know, the first quarter of the year. So a lot of people haven't met their deductible. So we were you know, trying to, we were thinking, well, this is going to be enforced. What's going to happen? This is going to, you know, just kind of blow up all these health savings accounts. Um, and, and normally for tax purposes, you no know, first dollar coverage would apply to a telemedicine service. It's not preventative. And the full deductible would need to be met before any other, you know, employer finance payment could trigger. Um, but on March 27th, the CARES Act was signed into law. And Section 3701 of that creates a temporary safe harbor allowing high deductible health plans to cover telehealth services and other remote care without cost to plan members before the members' deductibles are met. So you won't lose your high deductible health plan status if a plan offers cost-free telehealth. Members will remain eligible to make and receive contributions to an HSA. Um, and it offers significant relief to plan sponsors, so like large employer groups who want to offer this as a, as a benefit to their employees to keep them safe and home and still preserving that, that high deductible health plan qualified status. Um, like everything else, this is only temporary relief, um, but this and this safe harbor applies only for plan years beginning before January 1st, 2022. So what's interesting is that this will still be in effect for plan years starting all through 2021. Um, the no first dollar coverage rule has historically been viewed as a barrier to some of the more creative ways that employers might want to adopt telehealth for their for their employees. So you know, we might see some, um, at least for the year or so, some creative plans on, on how that's achieved. Um, I think Lisa already, the other thing I was going to mention was the no, um, the no enforcement under OCR, uh, OCR's non-enforcement for um, non-compliance with HIPAA rules. And I think that, um, uh, you know, so the, the federal things are going to be tied to the end of the federal um, public emergency while the, um, the extension on the high deductible plans goes for a year. But the Massachusetts things may end at a different time. So I think unwinding all of this, you know, as we look beyond, I think the unwinding is going to be interesting. And I think particularly if there are different times that things end. So if all of a sudden you need to be HIPAA compliant, but you have other things that are allowing continued access and waived cost share, you know, it'll be, we'll have to see how all that balances out. Um, so I tried to get through that. Hopefully that made sense. And um, I will hand it back to you, John. Great, thank you so much, uh, Melissa. Um, our uh, third and next speaker is uh, Creta Bowens-Jones, uh, who is currently Associate General Counsel with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Uh, Creta advises the Institute on a broad range of healthcare and general corporate issues. Uh, including privacy and security, uh, regulatory, contractual, uh, risk management risk management matters, and patient care. Uh, Creta is currently a member of the Council of the Boston Bar Association uh, and a trustee for the Boston Bar Foundation, as well as a member of the uh, Boston Bar Foundation Society of Fellows. Uh, and she serves on the steering committee for the Privacy, uh, Cybersecurity, and Digital Law section. 
Uh, today, Creta will be speaking uh, with, uh, to us about the provider perspective on telehealth services in the face of a public health emergency. And more specifically, we'll be discussing some of the challenges faced in implementing telehealth services uh, in the midst of the ongoing uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, thank you, Creta, and I'll turn it over to you. Oh, Creta, I think you have to unmute. Sorry, I told myself I would do that first thing as soon as you said my name, and of course I forgot. So thank you very much, John. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Um, thank you for having me here this afternoon. Um, I know I'm here to represent a provider perspective, but um, I'll acknowledge that for Dana-Farber, which is a specialty hospital, some of the issues that I'll talk about were pretty unique to Dana-Farber. I think a representative from a full service acute care hospital would probably talk about steps to safely balance treating COVID-19 patients and other patients while integrating telehealth. And those weren't really issues that we faced as a specialty hospital, but the national emergency certainly had an impact on our operations um, and treating a population with a heightened risk of being impacted by COVID-19 certainly came into play um, when we were trying to figure out how to manage and um, implement telehealth services. Um, the first overarching issue we grappled with was, was about scope. What did we want to consider, what did we consider to be telehealth? Um, could we put in place real-time video and virtual visits, um, telephone visits to replace what would normally be in-person consults? And a lot of those discussions were dictated by, you know, reimbursement, the the 1135 waivers and the you know, reimbursement waivers that both Lisa and Melissa had discussed. And it involved really in-depth discussions with our finance team to sort out what would be reimbursable and how, um, how the reimbursement would impact the delivery of telehealth services. Um, and we also had to grapple with questions of who would be involved with providing telehealth services. You know, normally in-person visits are multidisciplinary. So nurses and surgeons and medical oncologists will um, have back-to-back -back or integrated scheduled visits with patients. And sometimes those visits will involve fellows and other providers such as social workers and navigators and interpreters. Is there a way to duplicate that multidisciplinary way of delivering care when you provide telehealth services? Um, this is something we're actually still grappling with. It's a work in progress. But as we've been able to um, improve the technologies that are being used to deliver telehealth, um, it's becoming much easier to, to integrate and to include these multiple, this multidisciplinary approach in the delivery of care via telehealth. Um, we also had to grapple with integrating telehealth and in-person clinical services. So identifying services that could be provided remotely and making that transition, excuse me, um, and thinking about what services made the most sense to provide remotely. Obviously, certain things such as infusion or radiation oncology could never be done remotely, but is there a way to combine telehealth visits with in-person visits for certain patients who might be scheduled for those types of on-site services? Um, and we also had to think about what services could be delayed um, or what could be shifted to telehealth. I'm thinking more about patients, survivorship patients who are part of a long-term follow-up plan. Um, did it make sense to try to 
um, include survivorship patients in the telehealth model or just try to postpone those visits into a time where they could be on site. Um, and again, as time went on, we um, were able to figure out and come up with mechanisms to be able to, to provide telehealth services to patients that um, identify the patients who would benefit from having services via telehealth and, and figure out which ones could be, which services could be delayed. Um, technology was definitely an important issue for us as a provider. Um, hospitals are not technology innovators, um, generally tend to be slow to incorporate new technologies. Um, so a, a big question was what would be the acceptable tools for delivering telehealth services? Um, Lisa touched on the, uh, the OCR waivers. Um, Lisa and Melissa touched on the OCR waivers around enforcement for um, certain HIPAA requirements. And one of those waivers pertain to technology. And as Lisa mentioned, um, OCR had indicated that there could technologies with which institutions did not have uh, business associate agreements could be used. Um, since there were other, other tools available where we could have a business associate agreement and thinking prospectively on how this might look post-national post emergency, um, you know, going with tools such as Zoom for Healthcare seemed to be a better approach. I mean, there, were, there were early security concerns, but as many things have improved over the course of this national emergency, um, a lot of those security concerns uh, seem to have been addressed. Um, and then there are different practices associated with different tools. There's certainly standalone tools, and then there are tools that are integrated into the electronic medical record, um, which had implications on how visits were initiated um, and coming up with ways to guide providers on how to initiate the visits, depending on which tools were used. And of course, when in introducing a new technology into a care plan, there were issue real-time issues with patients. Um, patients who might disable pop-ups or other technology issues where, you know, the patients and providers couldn't hear each other. There would be an inability to, to access the waiting rooms or, you know, these things all impacted the patient and provider experience. And although those have become less frequent over time, certainly still issues. Um, there was a lot of misinformation at the very beginning of the crisis that um, thankfully is been resolved for the most part um, in the absence of clear guidance, which was certainly lacking in many areas at the onset of the crisis, everyone becomes an expert. And so there were certainly questions about the issues, again, that Lisa and Melissa mentioned around CMS waivers, the OCR and HIPAA waivers. Um, when OCR announced there would be limited enforcement activity for being out of compliance with certain specific HIPAA requirements for a certain amount of time, that was not meant, that was not a blanket waiver by any means. And um, so there was a lot of misinformation about what, what was actually being waived. Um, and this became an issue for out-of-state licensure in particular, um, which I'll touch on in a minute, um, because not all state licensure waivers would apply to how Dana-Farber providers deliver services. Uh, we're not primarily in the business of preventing or mitigating COVID-19 um, in the community. So, and a lot of the waivers were structured that way. Um, and certainly, again, misinformation about um, reimbursement, you know, particularly around phone visits and the distinction between what CMS was saying, what private payers were saying um, or, or requiring and permitting. Um, Out-of-state licensure actually was a, was a, a significant issue for Dana-Farber. And again, I don't know if that was an issue that was 
seen at other full service acute care hospitals, um, primarily because we are a specialty hospital with special services. There are providers at Dana-Farber who are experts in treating cancers, one maybe one of five, a handful of experts across the country. So we were really struggling to grapple with the fact that those patients could not get to Dana-Farber. And there were issues of practicing telehealth across state lines. Um, so we had providers very early on interested in signing up for um, the, to signing up to provide services in other states who had implemented emergency waivers or reduced application um, requirements um, that would permit providers to practice across state lines if they just submitted a very abbreviated application form or you know, evidence of appropriate licensure in their state. But then there's a question of which states were we, were we interested in, in, in um, making those applications. How do we track those applications and when they expire, some of those waivers will expire at the end of the national emergency. Others would expire you know, at, at a very fixed date. Who would manage those, those, um, those uh, limited licensure, uh, the limited licenses that providers maintained. Um, but interestingly, this was made um, relatively easy because of the enthusiasm for our providers to, to actually apply for those licenses. A lot of the heavy lifting they handled um, and, you know, it, the providers are on board with a, a process, then that's, that's um, you're almost at the finish line in terms of having to um, implicate something, uh, incorporate something new into delivery of care model. And um, so that is something that uh, once we worked out the initial issues became much more easier to manage. Um, lastly, but certainly not least, were issues around access and equity. Um, in the beginning of the crisis, everyone was just worried about trying to make sure patients could be seen and they, we could remain in contact with patients and make sure visits were, when we could provide visits via telehealth, we, we took those steps to do that really promptly. But um, an issue that, that I think all providers struggle with is how to account for underserved and vulnerable populations' needs. Um, inclusion was a big issue, is an ongoing issue during this COVID-19 transition. But when you think about it from the telehealth perspective, there are differences in access to technology, um, differences in access to Wi-Fi and internet. Um, perhaps patients might not be in an area where there's privacy in order to be able to have a consult with a provider and, and language barriers are a concern. Um, and again, that's a work in progress. I think, you know, we have a, we come up with a good strategy to work with navigators to identify where there could be an access barrier to telehealth and um, working to address those concerns as visits are planned. Um, you know, looking forward, I think there's been great enthusiasm for integrating telehealth into the scope of providing services and hopefully that we'll be able to continue to do that post-national emergency. But the questions that you know, Lisa and Melissa pointed out, the issues of how to, get, how to be paid, the unwinding that Melissa mentioned, which we foresee coming down the pipeline. You know, telehealth reimbursement parity is an overarching issue. Um, and I think that'll have an impact on how um, telemedicine is um, provided it, for many providers going forward. And then perhaps most importantly, how do we replicate all aspects of a visit, um, including those interactions with others beyond the providers, the consenting process, um, doing follow-up appointment scheduling um, and doing so in a way that's warm, you know, and, and it can duplicate as well as we can what happens in person. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Great, thank you so much, Krieta. Uh And uh, now we'll be turning to uh, Tony Ablin. Uh, 
Tony uh, is a partner with the law firm of Morrison Mahoney in Boston, uh, in the Boston office. Uh, his practice includes professional liability defense, uh, hospital and medical law, product liability, uh, pharmaceutical and medical device litigation. Uh, Tony has successfully tried a number of cases uh, in the defense of physicians, nurses, and hospitals in both the federal and state courts in Massachusetts. Uh, and Tony will be uh, speaking to us about the liability risks of telemedicine, um, including primarily a discussion of the recent legislation uh, signed into law by Governor Baker recently, which aims to limit liability for the healthcare workers and facilities uh, attempting to practice medicine during this pandemic. So uh, thank you, Tony, and I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, John, and, and thank you to the BBA, uh, obviously, for this uh, opportunity as well. Um, so as John was suggesting, I get things on the back end. Uh, so when telemedicine has gone wrong um, and, and how that gets addressed in the sort of COVID-19 area is obviously one of the many things that, that's going to be up for debate. Um, so what I wanted to do briefly, and I'll try to be as brief as I can, which I'm not terribly good at, is uh, just to walk through the statute a little bit. Um, that was signed into law by, by Governor Baker and sort of contextualize what would happen um, in, a, in a case of medical liability against a provider in a, in a telemedicine session right now. Um, so if we go on to the next slide. So uh, it, it was uh, Senate Bill uh, 2640, and it's an act to provide liability protections for healthcare workers. It was enacted on April 17th, 2020. Um, and, and sort of the timing is interesting because you can contextualize that with the, um, uh, some of the other, uh, like the Federal PrEP Act, for example, uh, which does extend potential liability protections to providers, although uh, the state statute uh, attempts to fill in some of the gaps. Uh, next slide. So, the language of the statute and we get to jump back to law school and essentially just break it down um, a little bit piece by piece. Um, so it provides immunity from suit and civil liability. So potentially um, it, it, it could end a case early if it's, if it's saying that it's not simply immune from liability but immune from suit overall, you might be able to get out on a motion to dismiss. Um, but within the context, if we go to the last line, it's if a healthcare professional or healthcare facility in the course of providing healthcare services during the period of the COVID-19 emergency. And then if we go to the next slide, it lines up the provided, however, so the, the three categories that need to be satisfied in order to provide immunity from suit and civil liability to a medical provider. Um, if the healthcare facility or healthcare professional was arranging for or providing healthcare services pursuant to a COVID-19 emergency rule and in accordance with otherwise applicable law. I'll come back in a minute to what a COVID-19 emergency rule is. Second, arranging for or providing care or treatment of the individual was, imp was impacted by the healthcare facilities or healthcare professionals' decisions or activities in response to treatment conditions 
resulting from the COVID-19 outbreak. So was the decision that was made, the treatment decision, was that made in response to COVID-19 or these emergency rules that I'll talk about and that it occurred in good faith? Uh, next slide, please. So this is what that emergency rule is. And obviously it's, it's long and involved, but um, it specifically responds to essentially a state, state guidance. Was it an executive order, an order of the Commissioner of Public Health, a declaration, directive, or other state or federal authorization, policy, state guidance, rulemaking, or regulation? that waives, suspends, or modif modifies otherwise applicable state or federal law regulations or standings and standards. And this is regarding the scope of practice or the conditions of licensure. So you can see that would apply to whether or not a, uh, a, a medical provider is acting within their licensure, like a, like a resident or a physician's assistant, for example. Um, two, the delivery of care, including those in regarding the standard of care, the site at which the state is delivered or the equipment used to deliver care during the COVID-19 emergency. And I just focus briefly on that, the standard of care language. Um, this in, in many ways I think is applicable to the, the application of crisis standards of care during the emergency itself. And those crisis, of, crisis standards of care are those essentially triggered by, by, um, by the Department of Public Health's guidance and otherwise uh, through communication from institutions or, or providers. If there was a scenario where, for example, there was a lack of ventilators and there needed to be a decision made as to who gets one and who doesn't, that's the sort of crisis standard of care that they're talking about here. Next slide. So, if you go, if you think back to the options that, that they that they gave, actually, can you go back two slides for me for a second? Number two, uh, that's the arranging for providing care or treatment of the individual who was impacted by the healthcare facility or professionals' decisions or activities in response to treatment conditions resulting from the COVID nineteen outbreak. That line now move two forward. Thank you. So what healthcare provider's decision results from the COVID-19 outbreak? So who is the treater? Is that, that, that can be a decision that was made. Who is the treated? Uh, who is treated and who's not? Uh, how or when are they treated and how are they treated? And, and so one of the questions comes up is, okay, was the use of telemedicine itself a result of the COVID-19 outbreak. So that would be one consideration for whether that's triggered. But certainly it's, it's gonna move forward into a, a, another challenge to that, which is what was the treatment that was provided or the treatment option that was provided? And did that in any way result from the COVID-19 outbreak? because all care is within the context of the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, so the question, it, you can look at sort of a uh, run through a, a fact pattern, a 
for example. And, and uh, I think Lisa mentioned like, like when we were talking about the filling situation, the idea of the photograph of a rash. Okay, so let, let's say uh, I call my doc doctor with a rash and I show them the rash through a picture or a FaceTime or something like that. And the physician makes a decision based on that, that you know, you're, you're all set. You don't have to, uh, um, let's keep an eye on it for a couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, let's say that, for example, that turned into a, uh, and I only say this because the dog just got bit by a tick, the, uh, the halo rash from a Lyme disease. Um, and earlier treatment may have caused a, uh, a better result. Was that misdiagnosis? Did that result from the COVID-19 outbreak? No, it didn't. There was nothing about that misdiagnosis necessarily that, that was a, a, a result of the COVID-19 outbreak or that could have been done differently. In reality, it comes down to, you know, if this was really an emergency situation um, and, and, and the procedure or the treatment should not have been delayed um, and could have been provided, will, it, will this litigation shield apply? And, and I think the answer is probably not. And even if it, but, and it certainly will be challenged. Uh, go ahead and go on to the next slide. Um, so there's also the good faith requirement um, that it, and that definition is that it shall, without limitation, um, include acts or omissions undertaken consistent with the guidelines for crisis standards of care. So then again, we get to that, that question of crisis standards of care. So the good faith challenge, for example, if that sort of, if that a horrendous decision needed to be made as to who gets the one ventilator um, becomes a good faith decision if it's guided by those crisis standard of care. Um, and, um, and again, and it, that, that it excludes without limitation um, acts or omissions based on race, ethnicity, national origin, origin, religion, disability, sexual orientation or gender identity and deceptive acts or practices and fraud. Um, I simply underline disability here because a, a question that could have come up. Thankfully, there was not that. Uh, the level of the surge was not as significant as it could have otherwise been. Um, there were discussions within the crisis standard of care, again, as to how you end up making uh, determinations as to who receives care when there is limited care. And one of them, one of the discussions that obviously was had was, well, you know, what, what if you have a, um, a person who has significant comorbidities um, and then a 40 year old who has no comor comorbidities? Um, how do you make that, do you, do you work in those comorbidities into your decision making? And is that good faith excluding disability. So that was, that's sort of a, a conceptualiza conceptualization of how that could have played out um, uh, uh, as the situation progressed. Uh, next slide. So where the immunity, um, uh, another area where the immunity doesn't extend is 
specifically that it shall not apply if the damage was caused by an act or omission uh, constituting gross negligence, recklessness, or conduct with an intent to harm or discriminate, again, based upon those, uh, those categories, um, as well as uh, consumer protection actions. Uh, brought on by the Attorney General or false claims actions brought on on behalf of the Commonwealth. Um, and in terms of uh, obviously conduct with an intent to harm or discriminate um, is, is one um, is one area. Recklessness also is another area. All those have, have different connotations. Gross negligence is an interesting question with, with, with respect again to telemedicine and there'll be a question as to whether or not that issue will be raised, uh, you know, in, in, in scenarios where you just had, where, where a physician simply had a, I can see the issue being raised where, where, where there'll be a challenge to a, a, a telemedicine call, or again, a, um, um, an, an ex, a, a telephone conference or something along those lines that doesn't, for example, provide vital signs. Uh, where the allegation will be that it was grossly negligent to not have to have not provided additional care without vital signs being taken. So again, it's you know as any good attorney will say, will this apply? It'll apply, but it depends on the circumstances. So it's all quite all very unclear at this point. Um, Next slide. Um, and and again, this for, as to volunteer organizations, this is this is like less applicable for today's conversation. But just so um, so we're aware, this is specifically I think designed for the um, uh, the sort of pop up institutions as well um, that that came in relative to the um, uh, uh, potential overflow. And again, it 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 immunizes those volunteer organizations and the facilities where, um, unless it was established that it was caused by gross negligence, recklessness, or, or, or conduct with intent to harm. And yeah, next slide. Uh, the timing is, is, is interesting um, as well. So the limitation is um, the effective period of the COVID emergency, which was declared on March 10, and until terminated or rescinded. Um, just sort of thinking about it contextually as well, um, the whole Biogen situation occurred before the emergency was declared. So theoretically, anything related to that um, and sort of provide a reaction to that and, uh, may fall outside of the scope of this. But um, um, it goes until term until the emergency itself is terminated or rescinded. And next slide. And that's it. But a couple of other responses to some things that were um, that, that were talked about earlier too. Um, those HIPAA relaxations, obviously, I don't think there would be. There may not have been any HIPAA acceptable. Um, uh, telemedicine platform early on in the, in, in this scenario, so certainly not a significant number of them. And even though those, essentially the HIPAA, the enforcement is being relaxed, 
uh, one thing that needs to be kept in mind as to physician liability too is that doesn't necessarily protect against um, uh, state privacy acts. Um, and, and you know, you can imagine, um, notwithstanding anything else, how disturbed a patient would be if they were um, Zoom bombed during uh, during their visit with their provider or otherwise. So it's something that all providers need to keep in mind too, is obviously they still have obligations with respect to, um, uh, to ensuring um, uh, the privacy commitments um, uh, of their, tele their telehealth uh, um, appointments and otherwise. Um, and that is borne out in, and something we, you know, we really don't have time to go through today, but um, take a look at the American Medical Association's ethical guidelines related to telemedicine which were uh, promulgated well before this. But that lays out um, the, the, essentially the standard of care as to how uh, telemedicine is provided and how um, the, the sort of pitfalls, specifically in the sort of day-to-day -day application of it that patients, um, that, that patients can face. Um, anyway, I wanna, Thank John and get it right back to him. Thank you, everyone. Great, thank you, Tony. And uh, I think we finished up uh, just in the nick of time. Uh, thank you again to uh, Lisa, to Melissa, uh, to Krieta and Tony uh, for your uh, very interesting perspectives on this very uh, 